You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to Heart Sounds for October 2022. The wind is howling outside my window right now and I always say rosy, crispy October would be one of my favorite months of the year if it wasn't followed by gloomy November. Heart Sounds, as you hopefully know by now, is the podcast where I recap some of the top news on TCTMD over the past month and let you listen in on some of the interviews we did while pulling together those stories. This month, the TCTMD news team covered a few key presentations from the EACS meeting in Milan and the HFSA meeting in Washington, D.C., but we also had time to delve into some longer-form stories based on some in-depth conversations we had with cardiologists and researchers with some strong ideas and opinions. We wrapped up our coverage of the TCT meeting before October kicked off, but one of the late breakers from Boston stuck with us. If you listened to Heart Sounds last month, you'll recall that I spoke with Juan Granada and Ajay Curtinay about protected TAVR, which was the randomized trial comparing cerebral embolic protection to usual care during TAVI with the aim of preventing stroke. We talked on the podcast about the rather unusually positive reception these trial results got at the time, given that the study had actually missed its primary endpoint. As you may recall, the trial was powered to show a difference in stroke within the first 72 hours post-procedure, and in the end, the Sentinel device was no better than usual care. A secondary endpoint, however, disabling strokes, significantly favored the device. This month, in an in-depth retrospective on Protected Taver, TCTMD reporter Todd Neal explores the unusual concluding statement permitted by the New England Journal of Medicine, where the results were simultaneously published, the upbeat marketing materials put out by Boston Scientific about the trial, as well as new insights from the PI, Samir Kapadia of the Cleveland Clinic, who back in September told Todd that he actually viewed the trial as positive. In Todd's story, Kapadia explained why he thinks it would be a disservice to clinicians and patients to state that cerebral protection doesn't work on the basis of this study alone. Not surprisingly, there are many others who disagree. I hope you'll check out Todd's piece entitled Prudence or Spin, Mulling Embolic Protection After Protected Taver, to hear the full spectrum of opinions on this study, its publication, and implications. David Cohen of St. Francis Hospital and Heart Center in Roslyn, New York, is also the Director of Clinical and Outcomes Research at the Cardiovascular Research Foundation. Here he is in conversation with Todd, offering his take on these results and their interpretation. Considering that the trial was you know, underpowered for what they were looking to do, is the focus on the disabling stroke outcome, the secondary outcome, how appropriate was that? You know, the researchers are making a lot out of it. I've seen it highlighted over the main study results in some Boston scientific marketing. How appropriate is it to focus on that in this case? I think it's understandable why they would focus on it, because there is no question that disabling stroke is the most important stroke-related endpoint. But I also think that, you know, we have to temper our enthusiasm for that finding and that conclusion because it was not pre-specified as the primary endpoint. Um, and uh, therefore, you know, it's possible that we're substantially overestimating that effect or finding an effect that isn't, you know, actually there. We don't have the protection of being the pre-specified primary endpoint as we usually do uh, in these trials. If the investigators had anticipated that that would be the endpoint, it would have been far better to have designed the trial with that as the primary endpoint. If they had done that, it would have been a positive trial and it would have been far more convincing. 
In his regular life, Carlos Bueller is a world-class, high-altitude mountaineer. But if you attended the TCT meeting in September, you might have seen Carlos standing alone at a table in the exhibit hall under a yellow and blue sign that read, Heart of Ukraine. TCTMD's Laura McEwen was intrigued and got in touch with Bueller to hear how he, a non-physician, came to learn about the dire shortages being faced by cath labs amid the Russian invasion. Laura's feature story recounts Bueller's efforts to create a direct donation pathway connecting Ukrainian hospitals with U.S. cath labs and device makers who are keen to donate stents, balloons, guide wires, medications, and more. An American currently living in Canmore, Canada, Bueller spoke with Laura about the logistics and hazards of trying to get aid into a country at war and the inevitable shrinkage that happens with shipments trying to get over the border. I hope you'll look up Laura's story, From Mountains to Meds, a grassroots effort is restocking cath labs in Ukraine. Here's a teaser. It's hard to define what shrinkage is caused by, but when you have heart stents, if somebody recognizes the value of a heart stent at the border, and you've got 1,300 of them, uh, that's a lot of value. Mm -hmm. And as we know, we're shipping hundreds of millions of dollars of stuff to Ukraine every day. And so what happens to that stuff? Well, a certain amount of it gets skimmed off and sold in the black market. And that's the way it is and always has been around the world. If you're an aid organization or the U.S. government or whoever you are, you know, it's just some level of corruption. And so I was very determined to minimize that so that if a company like Mass General gave us these boxes of supplies or Biotronic gave us heart stents, I thought my role here is to make this simple and secure and personalized. DCTMD's Michael O'Reardon did a story this month about new research from a group at Stanford in conjunction with the American Heart Association focused on the impact of tobacco advertising. By drawing heavily on internal documents from the companies themselves, this report shows that the steady rise in menthol cigarette use was the result of sophisticated advertising directed at young people, women, and black Americans. The timing of this report is intentional. Earlier this year, the FDA proposed new rules that would force the removal of menthol cigarettes and flavored cigars and cigarellos from the market. That move is intended to reduce the appeal of these cigarettes to youth and young adults and to decrease the likelihood that non-users would start smoking. When I listened to Mike's interview with lead researcher Robert Jackler of Stanford, I had trouble choosing which clips to play for you because the whole discussion was so fascinating and honestly so awful. It's hard to think sometimes about all the people out there in the world really motivated by profit and ambition and zero moral compass when it comes to playing havoc with people's health. Here is a bit of a montage from that interview with some key parts of their conversation. What spurred the deep dive that you guys did? This must have been a massive undertaking, and uh, what what sort of brought it on, and, and what was the goal with it here? Well, the motivation was to inform regulators and legislators and also litigators with the evidence that they need 
to defend against the tobacco industry's lobbying and litigating onslaught that will follow the FDA's proposed um, removing menthol cigarette and cigar products from the market. And I use the term removing from the market rather than banning or prohibiting because people in America don't like prohibitionistic rhetoric, right? right? So they want to remove it from the market. You know, it was no accident that young teenage starter smokers started using menthol cigarettes. It was no accident that urban slash inner city black predominant communities got bombarded by advertising. And, and our goal was to express it using the voice of the industry. Right. So, you know, because of litigation in America, particularly the 1998 Master Settlement Agreement, there's a hundred million, nearly a hundred million internal tobacco industry documents. Using those documents, we could tell the story in the voice of the industry itself. Yeah. How it planned its advertising, how it planned its targeting, who they went after, and the effectiveness of different ad campaigns. Earlier this month, the American College of Cardiology released a policy statement outlining the need for more flexibility in the cardiology workforce in order to benefit cardiologists at all stages of what they called the career arc. That, they say, would improve patient care and encourage more diverse candidates to enter the field. As TCTMD's Caitlin Cox wrote in her coverage, survey after survey has shown that cardiologists face challenges in work-life balance. Women too often pay a price for having children, while older physicians face difficult decisions as they approach retirement age. As the statement argues, a more adaptable workplace could be an antidote to burnout and less stressed out clinicians so that they can deliver better and safer patient care. Caitlin spoke with Mary Noreen Walsh of Ascension St. Vincent Heart Center in Indianapolis, who chaired the statement's writing committee. In this part of their conversation, Walsh had some tips for how practices could make some changes relatively swiftly. Practices and institutions can, you know, examine for themselves, you know, what are their policies. And one of the probably the most important things in cardiology is there are some practices where you're all in or you're all out. You can't step out of, say, night call before you're done. You can't, you know, say, I, I'd like to step back, but I still want to work, you know, full-time during the day, but I don't want to be in the call pool. We really call that out specifically in this document to say, you know, you're you're giving up senior clinicians who are, we call them rainmakers in the document. They're rainmakers. They're, they're still bringing patients into the practice, and they want to continue work for a number more years, but are not interested in being full-time, full-call. Another example is interventional cardiologists frequently are uh, up all night taking STEMI call, and then have full responsibilities during the day for a clinic or the cath lab. And that is uh, something that has been pretty traditional in cardiology. And, you know, that's to some extent both a well-being issue and also a patient safety issue. So those are the things that could happen, you know, by practices saying, okay, we're not going to do it this way anymore. We're going to do it a different way. Um, And those can happen pretty rapidly. For their internal medicine residency and general cardiology fellowships, interventional cardiology applicants, like most of their peers, use the National Resident Matching Program to match them to their programs after interviewing and submitting rank lists. But while most other cardiovascular specialty fellowships use a match system to place candidates, 
Interventional cardiology is the lone exception. There are plans afoot to move interventional cardiology to a match, but as Yael Maxwell found out when she delved into this topic for a feature story, every trainee or recent graduate interviewed for this article had horror stories about their experience getting into interventional cardiology. Some were faced with exploding offers, giving them sometimes as little as one or two days to make a life-altering decision about where they'd like to do the next part of their career. Here is one such tale from Saras Vallabajosala of Wake Forest University School of Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Did you get any of those so-called exploding offers? Yes, so I got a lot of offers, all of them giving me 48 to 72 hours. I had five interviews in five days because those were the only dates available. And all five were in different cities and I had to like interview fly, interview fly, basically for the whole week. It was ridiculous. But for example, like I interviewed a program, flew out of that city, I landed in the next city and there was a missed call from the program director from the program I just interviewed at. I obviously called him back and he said, we have an offer for you, are you willing to take? I said, you know, give me time. And he said, the most I'm going to give you is 24 hours. So I interviewed at the other program that I was at the next day. And I was thinking about the program I just finished at and trying to like, you know, drop balance because I mean, you're clutching at straws at this point. So that's that's basically what I did. And I did the best I could in the circumstances that I had. I, I passed on a lot of offers that I would have liked to ideally think through and consider a little more, you know, with a little more reasonable uh, thought process. I hope you'll go and read Yael's full story looking at just how much of an impact this flawed process is having on would-be interventionalists. Search the word ridiculous on tctmd.com to find Yael's story. You can also find her video interview with Dr. Don Abbott of Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, as well as several other guests about the need for an IC match. That is on our fellows forum. For now, here is Dr. Abbott, who served as the program director for her institution's IC fellowship up until last year. It's way too rushed where, because there's no set timeline for fellows, they had to sort of grab any opportunity presented to them and had to, you know, basically give up. You know, they may have had interviews scheduled, but they're put under ultimatums, which are really unfair um, to the applicant. And I think in some level, it it disadvantages um, individuals who come from programs without an interventional fellowship, who don't have the luxury of just staying where they are. It might uh, disadvantage some minority or underrepresented candidates who are really looking for a program that they feel can train them well and the environment is supportive. And, you know, from a program standpoint, you lose the opportunity to showcase your strengths and to really sift through thoroughly the applicant pool. That is it for the October edition of Heart Sounds. I hope you're inspired to go and find these stories and more on TCTMD, including our Beyond the Data video series with our senior clinical editor, Mamas Mamas, who did a number of excellent interviews at TCT last month. Our meeting coverage continues in November with breaking news from the American Heart Association scientific sessions, as well as highlights from London Vals later in the month. 
Before heading into that November gloom, I'd like to leave you on an optimistic note. I had the opportunity to sit down in studio with Valentin Fuster, recently named the president of Mount Sinai Heart in New York and a longtime visionary in cardiovascular disease prevention. Our topic was precision medicine versus public health approaches to curbing the scourge of cardiovascular disease. You can find our full conversation under the video tab on TCTMD by scrolling down to On Record. To take us out today, here is the tail end of my conversation with Dr. Fuster. Thanks for listening to Heart Sounds. Shelley, I will tell you, we are in a hopeful world. The world today is a chaos, and you know that. This is the time you have to reflect in ourselves. What is important for my life? And health is beginning to evolve. Communication with your friends is beginning to evolve. The family life is beginning to evolve. So what I'm saying is, in the difficult moments that we live today, I think it's a very fertile moment to evolve into what we are talking about. What is important in life? Hmm. The quality of life, health, your friends, the communication, your family. That's why I feel so hopeful. That's where we have to move on. Rather than constantly talking about the politicians are doing this, not doing that. It starts with us. And this, to me, is the way to go. And I am very involved in this particular pathway. Do you love listening to Heart Sounds? Check out all new original content from TCTMD featuring Talking Points with Dr. C. Michael Gibson and Rocks Art Radio with Dr. Roxanne Moran. All new episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud.